You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So today, right now, as I sit here in front of this microphone speaking with you, it is my my, mine and Terry's, our 20th anniversary. We've been together for 20 years as of today. It was 20 years ago today that we met. And we threw something up on Instagram, both of us did, because we're lucky. People, this didn't used to happen. 20 years ago, the night we met, somebody had a camera and took a picture of us together. That's not a rare thing now for people to have photographs of you know, when they met their boyfriend or when they met their their spouse because everybody's carrying cameras around with them 24 hours a day and taking pictures of every fucking thing they eat, including their meals and the person they just met in this bar. But for us, for people who met pre-cell phone cameras, pre-internet, pre-Instagram, pre-texting, pre-all of that, it's rare. And we have this photograph last night we met. And it's one of our favorites. And so we Instagrammed it out. And this occasioned, uh, you know, as we kind of thought it would, just an avalanche of congratulations, people wishing us well and congratulating us on this achievement because our relationship has stood the test of time because it is a lasting, long, 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 multi-decade term relationship. And I just wanted to jump in here and say longevity is not the only criteria of relationship success. We throw that around. We congratulate people on their 20th anniversaries and you know we were seeking congratulations. We put it out there. And that's good, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that a relationship doesn't have to be long-term to be healthy. It doesn't have to be everlasting to be uh, something you can be proud of, that people can have short-term relationships that are wonderful and fulfilling, that they can look back on fondly, that they should be congratulated for, that relationships don't have to end with one person being lowered into the ground to be counted a success, that you can be with somebody for an evening for a weekend, for six months, for a year, for 20 years, and part. And that can be something that is also congratulations worthy. How you conducted yourself in that relationship, how you treated each other, whether you parted and it's amicable, whether you're still friends, whether you can be with each other still and love and support each other still, even if you're not, quote unquote, together still. Those relationships, we, we ignore those. We, we pretend that they don't exist or we can't see them because – the only metric, the only criteria that we use for success is still together, is everlasting, is until death does you part. So anyway, on the occasion of our 20th anniversary, I just wanted to say to everyone out there, congratulations to you guys on your relationships. However long they lasted, whether they're still ongoing, congratulations on the boyfriends or girlfriends that you had that you remember fondly and who think fondly of you that you can be friendly with when you run into or you seek out. Congratulations on that weekend you spent with somebody that you met on vacation that was very joyful where you learned some new sex technique or taught someone else some new sex technique and you just had a great fucking time and nobody was harmed and everything was awesome. Congratulations on that relationship. If you are with somebody and it is ongoing as I am with somebody and it is ongoing, congratulations on that. I guess what I'm trying to say is everybody recognizes and, and wants to celebrate those quote-unquote successful long-term relationships, those LTRs. It even has its own acronym, the LTR. And I think we need to 
those of us in LTRs also need to celebrate and need to remember our STRs and celebrate our short-term relationships and congratulate people not just on their long-term relationships or their anniversaries, but also on their STRs, their successful STRs, that you can have a successful STR just as you can have a successful LTR. And if your STRs have been loving, joyful, life-affirming, and healthy, you deserve as much congratulations on your STRs as Terry and I do on our LTR. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I know of a middle school student who just was starting the process of coming out to friends, family, and such. The friends went well, and he actually started to share it with some close confidants at school, teachers, counselors, and the like. I think kind of in preparation in order to take the ultimate step in coming out to his parents. Well, it turns out that it, it didn't go particularly well. The, the parents are very conservative and basically begun the process of kind of shutting the kid's life down keeping away from supportive friends, keeping away from those people at school that he shared his, his coming out with and who were very supportive of him. I, I guess I want to know, for someone who's 13 years old, 18 and graduated seems like a lifetime away, what type of advice, what type of comfort, what type of pep talk, anything could you possibly kind of give this kid to, to make sure that he, he still finds his way in this world even though he has terrible parents who aren't going to support him in any way. There's lots I could say to this kid. Um, there's a whole book, the It Gets Better book, uh, full of advice for this kid, the, the It Gets Better project online, full of videos, tons of wisdom from all sorts of different and diverse LGBT individuals. Um, one of the things I might have said to this kid before he came out to his parents was maybe you should wait. The coming out is often presented to young people and uh, kids who come out younger and younger are often celebrated, but it's often presented as the end of all your troubles. And for a lot of LGBT kids coming out, particularly to their families uh, that they're very vulnerable to, is the beginning of new problems and sometimes horrifyingly consequential problems. This kid is facing those kinds of problems. His parents are doing everything wrong. They're doing everything that the research and data shows – doubles the already quadrupled risk for suicide for a gay, lesbian, bi, or trans kid. They are risking their kid's life, this isolating him, this bullying him, this rejecting him, risking their kid's life. And you know, my advice for this kid might have, before he came out to his family, might have been to wait, to take a cold, hard look at who your parents are and then decide whether it would be better for them to know or – you know, when you're 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 and powerless or would it be better for you to wait until you're 18 to come out to them? Uh, that ship has sailed and your calling, a concerned adult, asking me what I would say to this kid, what you could relay to this kid. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what to say to this kid. I'm going to tell you what to say to this kid's motherfucking parents. This kid is being pushed toward self-harm suicide, right? People, adults in your community, in this kid's school, in his orbit, all of you, all these adults standing around watching, you know this is happening. And you're not coming to me asking what you can say to his parents. You're coming to me asking what you can whisper to him that might help him endure the next three or four or five years. That's fucked, you need to go get in his parents' face. 
You need to go yell at his parents. You need to communicate. You need to make them understand that there are witnesses, that there's a community of people who know what they are doing and think they're shitty fucking people and terrible, rotten fucking parents. You need to create in their head some sort of sense of accountability and you can create that sense in their head. You can make them self-conscious about what the fuck they're doing to their queer kid by getting in their face about it. Not illegal to go yell at somebody about what a shitty parent they are, right? They're being terribly shitty parents. You are watching a kid being thrown in front of a truck. Leela Alcorn's parents did everything wrong. She jumped in front of a truck. In my opinion, they threw her in front of that truck, her terrible parents. You are watching parents dragging their kid toward the freeway to throw him in front of the truck. Speak the fuck up. No whispering to the kid. No, it gets bettering at him. Throw him the book, throw him the website. A little it gets bettering at him. But that's not enough. You have to go get in the parents' faces. You have to go yell and scream at them. You have to call child protective services in your community. They were beating their kid. They were neglecting their kid. You wouldn't hesitate to call Child Protective Services. But there's this attitude that if the parents, conservative, Christian, whatever, parents of a queer kid are abusing that queer kid with potentially just as deadly consequences, that that gets a pass because Jesus. That's got to stop. That attitude has to end. Go get in mom and dad's face. Call Child Protective Services. Turn them the fuck in before they succeed in killing their queer kid. Hey, Dan. I wanted to ask a question about dating etiquette. Um, I'm kind of a serial monogamist, but for the past few years, I've been living in New York City. So I've been doing a lot of more short-term dating. And I'm wondering about open relationships. I myself am not interested in having an open relationship, but I totally understand that that works for some people. I, as I said, I've been dating some different people and one of the people I was dating told me a few months in that he was in an open relationship. So I was just wondering, is this okay? Is this normal or I guess acceptable to start dating someone that's your, you know, secondary or tertiary partner and not kind of clue them in just to start out with that they're already in a relationship. Let me know kind of your thoughts on this because I kind of think you're a guru on the whole open relationship thing. I was just kind of taken aback by that information a couple months into dating someone. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that uh, it's not so much that a lot of guys who are in open R's don't want to lead with this information. It's just that they're painfully aware that most women won't date them uh, if they disclose that they're in an open relationship. Women in open relationships typically have no problem finding guys who will fuck them, open relationship or no open relationship. But the the flip doesn't apply. Guys in open relationships are constantly complaining about the fact that it's really hard for them to find women who are open to the idea of dating somebody who has uh, another Romantic partners in a committed relationship with somebody else. You say that he disclosed a, a few months into the relationship with you, a few months uh, into dating you, that he was uh, in an open relationship with someone else. You kept using that that expression, that, that that phrase, that a couple months into dating, a couple months into dating, a couple months into dating. What I'm curious about is how far into fucking 
were you before he disclosed? If you guys were just hanging out, seeing each other casually, if you were dating, not fucking, and he hadn't disclosed, I think that's fair. I think when people are unfairly judged or there is a huge stigma attached to something, that it is okay to let someone get to know you before you disclose that you are crazily kinky, that you are HIV positive, perhaps that you are trans, things that I'm not lumping together and equating them but that a lot of people carry around sometimes irrational prejudices about and people are unfairly dismissed as potential romantic partners. And sometimes if someone gets to know you, they may revisit their prejudices and assumptions about who kinky people are or about who people in open relationships are or about who pause people are once they get to know someone who is one of those people as opposed to just an abstraction, one of those people, right? So if he was dating you and perhaps he's a guy who's in an open relationship, he and his girlfriend or wife opened it up and it was really easy for her to find other partners, really hard for him, and he learned not to disclose this right away, to let somebody get to know him, let a woman get to know him first and then roll it out before fucking, I think that's fair play. So if the disclosure was into a couple months of dating but not any fucking and he let you know this about himself before you became intimate, it has my blessing. If, however, he was fucking you this whole time without disclosing this info that I think that you had a right to before the fucking started, then I have a problem with that and you're allowed to have a problem with that because if I have a problem with it, you're allowed to have a problem with it. If I don't have a problem with it, you are not fucking allowed to have a problem with it. Those are the rules. Hey, Dan. This is Sarah calling from Oakland. I want to know if I've royally fucked up here. My significant other, I've been with her about two months, uh, has conveniently, you know, started moving some occasional things into the apartment, like a laptop, like some costumes, like some clothes. Not too big of a deal. However, he went on a trip and I was tasked with uh, sort of packing up some of his things that he had left around, including his laptop. So I put the laptop um, in a bin, left it outside really safely in my locked-in, you know, yard area, and then left him the key for access to the outside area, which is separate than the house key. He was very, very upset because I did not leave him both my house key and my yard key. And lo and behold, um, I forgot. I guess, to pack his power supply to his laptop that was in a totally separate area, a totally separate bag inside the house. So he's upset that he doesn't have all the components to the laptop. I'm upset that, you know, I didn't pack everything. He thinks he is entitled to access to my apartment after this time. And I just don't, I'm not there yet. I just don't want to give this person full access to my entire life, my home and everything. Um, So... So I didn't. I didn't leave him the key to the house, just the key to the outside space. Um, but I did, however, forget to pack an important piece, uh, though unknowingly, because I didn't know where it was being kept. So I'm just wondering what you think. Should I give my boyfriend full access to my apartment and leave him the keys somewhere hidden and stashed or give him his own set of keys after a couple of months? Is it his fault for not remembering where the power supply was kept to his laptop and then me for forgetting my fault for forgetting to include it when I packed up all of his shit so he could leave for a couple of days out of town? Help me make sense of this. I may have to recuse my – I don't know if I'm qualified to answer this question because I may be hopelessly biased in your boyfriend's favor. 
because I let my husband basically move in with me the night we met. We had a one-night stand and he never went away. He's still in my house. Actually, I don't have a key to my house right now because he gave it to somebody else who is house-sitting for us. So only my husband has a key to my house right now. Um, This one-night stand from 20 years ago. That said, if you guys are fighting about this kind of knockdown dragout fighting, call in the advice columnist fighting about what seems kind of piddling and minor. And if at two months you can trust him in your vagina but not your apartment, maybe that's a sign that he shouldn't be in your apartment or your vagina if you couldn't leave him the key to both. I'm not coming down on his side. Like if he w- there were specific things he needed from inside of your apartment and the deal was you were going to leave stuff outside in your safe and locked secure yard area without a key to the inside inner sanctum zone, then it really was his responsibility to make sure that you had an itemized list of every fucking last thing in your apartment that he needed. And if he knew and it was sort of a a known known of your relationship that he didn't have a key and he didn't have free access to the inside of your apartment, he shouldn't have been leaving all this crap around your house that he might need. That it was his responsibility to take his precious computer cords with him when he left in case he needed them. But if this is the shit you guys are fighting about, knockdown drag out fighting about at two months, you might want to pull the plug on the relationship. I'm trying to wrap my head around why you might not want him in your apartment without you there. You know, maybe he'll look around, maybe he'll snoop. He could do those things when you were asleep. You don't know anybody at two months well enough to trust them with everything. But a little unsupervised time in your apartment to retrieve a power cord on his way out of town, if you couldn't at two months trust him with that, maybe you shouldn't be dating him at all. Maybe that's your gut telling you something. If it's indeed this guy specific, if it's just a general policy of yours that guys have to be fucking you for six months or nine months or a year before they can be given the golden key to your apartment – that seems a little arbitrary to me. The guy whose husband moved in with him on their first – night together but that's just me hi dan i had a question for you my husband seems to find me most attractive when i am slightly overweight i'm not huge i'm maybe you know on a good day i'm 10 pounds overweight but during those winter months i get a bit cuddly and i seem to be maybe 15 15 20 pounds overweight i don't feel great about myself when i'm there and it's not really a place i like to be but I'm always working on it. However, I've noticed that when I gain this weight, suddenly my husband seems to find me much more attractive. He starts giving me compliments. Oh, you look really good. His sex drive goes up. And I just feel so funny because when I'm feeling at my worst is when he seems to see me at my best. And conversely, when I lose weight, he definitely doesn't, he stops complimenting me as much. I'm just wondering what you think about that because For my self-esteem, I like to be lighter, but it feels so great to have those compliments. I wonder what I should do. I've talked to him about it and asked him what he thinks, and he doesn't seem to notice that his behavior changes. And I've tried putting it out to him, and then he'll give me compliments when I'm at my lower weight. But it's an odd predicament because I want those compliments, and I love how he feels about me, but I don't know if I feel so great about myself. This seems to me like a problem that will solve itself over time. 
that as you get older, it's harder to keep that weight off, that whatever your ideal sort of perfect weight is at, you know, a younger age, your, you know, set weight and the weight at which you are happy as you get a little older tends to be just a little bit more, you know, people get a little doughier. So you will eventually age into his permanent ideal body type. There are a lot of women out there who would love to have your problem. There are a lot of women out there who would love to have husbands who preferred them at their a little chunkier size, you know, with a little bit more meat. There's no fix here. You ask me what I think about that. I think it's a problem that will solve itself in time because eventually you probably won't be able to keep that weight off and your new set weight at which you're happy will be a little higher than it is now and as it was when you met him. I also think that this is evidence of something that the research uh, has borne out that all these stick-thin models on runways, all these in- insanely skinny women on TV pretending to be Chicago police officers in that crazy show set in a Chicago police department where the police women look like twigs, which is no policeman I've ever met. Policeman I've met and I know and in my family look like look like tough fucking bitches who could break you, not twigs that could snap in a wind. Anyway, the research shows that men actually prefer women with a little bit more chunk on them than women think, that you ask women what men prefer and they will trot out the tiny little twigs and the sticks and the, you know, the models on the runway and just really radically thin bodies. But when you look at what men want, men generally want a little bigger and often a little browner, the research shows. So your husband is typical and you will most likely, as most of us do, you will age into a bit chunkier than you were when you met him in your 20s and then he will be happy and you will be happy and everyone will be happy. That's what I think. I don't think there's anything that can be done here. This rolls in cycles. You say you get a little lazier in the winter and you – not a little lazier. You get a little cuddlier I think is what you said in the winter and you put on a few pounds and he's a little bit happier and a little hornier and then for your own happiness, you lose the weight come the spring, the summer and the sex dries up just a little bit and uh, you'll just keep riding that roller coaster and enjoying it and count your blessings. You know, It would be worse if it was the inverse, if when you got a little chunkier, he withheld affection and didn't want to fuck you, right? You also said he doesn't notice that his behavior changes. I bet he does. I bet that he knows you know, the size at which he prefers you. But in previous relationships or just generally the advice is out there, men know not to fucking say anything about the sizes of butts, even if the size he prefers is perhaps a little bigger than a lot of women would assume. Even if the size he prefers is actually gives you a little bit more latitude to eat the cheeseburger and have the fries. That maybe he knows what he prefers and he pretends not to know it, you know, is incentivizing it, uh, you know, encouraging you to be the, you know, the, the, the weight at which he desires you more without actually articulating it, without making it an order or a command or him trying to control your body. He's just showering you with compliments and semen at those moments when you're closer to, you know, the, his physical type and ideal, uh, and not so much with the compliments and the semen when you've moved away from it. But he would never say that. He could never say, when you look how I prefer you to look, I am going to fuck the shit out of you and compliment the shit out of you because I want you to look that way all the time. Like that's a, that's a fucking minefield that most straight guys, particularly ones who've been in a few relationships, know to either tiptoe through very carefully or stay the fuck out of entirely. So he may be able to – he may know that his behavior changes. 
that he may know well enough not to tell you what he's up to when he's complimenting you at the size he prefers you at. But count your blessings. A lot of women are terrorized by the reverse dynamic where punished or affection withheld when a few pounds go on and that seems to be more of a self-esteem shredding dynamic than the one you're facing. So have the cheeseburger. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm calling about something that happened a couple months ago that's been bothering me. So around this time, my boyfriend and I were planning our first swinging experience. And um, we had a date scheduled for that evening. And while I was at work um, earlier that day, I got a call from my boyfriend telling me that um, he had mentioned this to a female coworker, a friend, um, and they had talked about this. Like he had been nervous and he kind of wanted to talk it out. And um, I thought it was off my back at the time, but I later let him know that I was kind of upset that he had shared this. This was our first experience and I was already nervous about it. And I felt like it was something that was very personal and private and that he didn't really, and that he shouldn't have shared it so openly without consulting me first. Um, he was very apologetic about it at the time, but now I wonder, um, basically my bottom line question is, was I wrong? Do I have the right to tell my boyfriend not to talk about a particular aspect of our sex life with his friends? I, I think I might have been stepping over a line, but I don't know. It did make me uncomfortable, so I just wanted to get some perspective. This is actually a really great question because you illustrate a problem that some people, some couples have when they are going to open their relationship. Uh, you know, everyone talks about good communication and negotiating boundaries. And one of the boundaries that doesn't get discussed is this who's going to know, uh, this disclosure stuff. People will sometimes say, you know, these sorts of people are out off limits. No coworkers, no friends, no immediate circle people. You know, and, and implied there is we want to keep this, you know, private. We don't want to be gossiped about or, or humiliated. But what gets left out of that is, you know, is what that question or what that aspect of the conversation kind of points to, uh, but is rarely explicitly unpacked, is the difference between socially monogamous and sexually monogamous. You two, as you open your relationship, are moving out of sexual monogamy into sexual non-monogamy. You're no longer going to be sexually monogamous. But the entire time you've been together, you have been, in addition to sexually monogamous, socially monogamous, perceived to be monogamous. And you can let go of the sexual monogamy and many people do. But a lot of people who are in non-monogamous relationships, particularly heterosexual couples and swingers, they let go of sexual monogamy. They have – they don't value. They don't want to be sexually monogamous. It's wonderful. They're doing – they're swinging. They're having three ways and outside sex with other people and it's all perfectly consensual and happy and wonderful and makes their relationship better. But they want to be perceived to be monogamous. They wish to maintain they're socially monogamous bona fides. They don't want the neighbors, friends, family, coworkers to know that they are fucking other people, whether that's just some sense of you know, they want to keep it private, they want privacy, or they don't want to have to face down the stigma and the shame that is often directed at people in non-monogamous relationships. And that's a real thing, that stigma and shame directed to people in non-monogamous relationships. I get it. We come in for it, Right. Even gay couples, the majority of uh, whom are not monogamous, those of us who are honest about it, we get grief. But straight couples, there's a lot more policing of monogamy in hetero land than in homo land. And straight couples really come in for it from friends, family, even employers. So your desire to keep this on the down low, your desire to be private about this is understandable. But you guys needed to have that be part of the conversation. That said, your question, was I wrong? Were you stepping over a line? I think you might have been. 
you know, he didn't broadcast it generally. He didn't write a blog post. He didn't tweet about it. He confided in a friend about this new territory that you and he were moving into. We need to be able to confide in our friends. There's a difference between broadcasting it to the world and shredding the socially monogamous perception and turning to a friend and confiding and getting their advice and their perspective. We need those people in our lives that we can be open with about our relationships, about the dynamics of our relationships, about the you know what, what's going on inside our relationships. It is isolating for you potentially to say to him, we're going to do these things and have these experiences and no one can know and you're not allowed to confide in your friends about it or talk with your friends about it. I don't think you would like it very much if he said that to you about this issue or some other issue and I don't think it's fair of you to say that to him. The thing I think you should have done and the mistake that was made here was not having the, all right, we're not going to be sexually monogamous. What about social monogamy part of the conversation when you negotiated openness and also not failing to carve out the exceptions. Okay, we're going to be sexually non-monogamous, but I want to maintain social monogamy, but you're allowed to confide in these people or these are the types of people that we can both turn to and confide in about who we are, what we're doing, and get that outside perspective and input that all of us in long-term open or closed relationships really need from friends. Not all of our friends, but at least one or two. Now, going forward, let's not look at this as who did what and who was right and who was wrong. You missed this aspect of the conversation. Almost everybody does when they have the shall we be open, I would like to be open, would you like to be open, let's open this up conversation. Almost everybody does skip this sexual versus social monogamy part of the convo. But a mistake was made. It was a mistake of oversight. It was a sin of omission, not commission. And I don't think you guys need to tear into each other about it. You just need to keep talking with each other about it. Hi, Dan. I'm the Texas Savvy at-risk youth. I started dating a woman who recently got out of a long-term physically, mentally, and emotionally abusive relationship with a man, which I've been learning more about as we get to know each other. We've only been dating for a month or two, and she knows I'm not looking to get involved in anything serious, but I really like this woman and enjoy spending time with her and getting to know her. We live in the Northeast where she moved from a different state and changed her phone number to get away from him. She's since gotten back in contact with him, and he now knows her address and her phone number. The other day, we were hanging out, and she and he messaged her over 240 times, saying terrible things to her while we were watching a movie, and she didn't have her phone on her. He keeps calling her until she picks up the phone so he can engage her and pull her into his madness. She's a smart woman who knows she has to cut contact with him and change her phone number again, but's having trouble breaking the cycle of abuse. I suggested that if she feels she needs to see him in person to work things out, which I think is a fucking terrible idea, she needs to meet him in a public place where she will be safe. She told me last night she let him come up uh, the other day to sort things out and met him at her home, saying she thought things would be different. But, of course, she ended up getting punched and physically abused. I've been trying to be there to support her, listening to her talk and give her my advice, but she isn't taking it. She needs to cut off all contact with him, get a restraining order, and call the police if he shows up at her door before she gets herself killed. I told her last night that I can't be part of such an unhealthy situation and that I care for her and want to keep getting to know her, but I can't put myself at the risk of this man finding out who I am or where I live. He already knows that she's seeing me and he hates it. Am I doing the right thing by removing myself from the situation and telling her 
I can't see her while she's in this harmful relationship, or should I step in and be there to try and protect her and keep her safe? Like I said before, we don't know each other that well, and I'm really just looking for something casual. But I can't see someone I care for being hurt in such a terrible way. You've told her what she needs to do to protect herself in this situation. She knows what she needs to do to protect herself in this situation. She had already done it when she moved and changed her phone number and this guy no longer had access to her, didn't know where she lived. And she undid all those things that she needed to do to protect herself. I empathize uh, with her. She's clearly an abused woman in, in a terrible abusive situation. However, we need to talk about what you need to do to protect yourself in this situation. Because it is all too common for abusive uh, persons, uh, abusive boyfriends, husbands, sometimes girlfriends, sometimes wives, to go after their partner's new partner, their ex-partner's new partner, who they either perceive or assume or know to be advising their ex to stay the fuck away from them. That they that the abuser will then not just punch or abuse or kill their ex, they will go and retaliate against their ex's current partner. You don't have to Google much. You don't have to be paying strict attention to daily newspapers to see stories in the press all the time about the abusive psychotic ex coming and killing their ex-wife and their ex-wife's new boyfriend or girlfriend. So you've told her what she needs to do. She knows what she needs to do to protect herself. She's not doing it. Now you have to do what you must to protect yourself, which is get the fuck away from her and this situation. Give her one last burst of advice, one last helpful download, and then you're going to have to remove yourself from a very volatile situation where it's not just this woman that you'd like to have a casual relationship with who is at risk of great harm. It is also now you. You are at risk of violence and injury and death potentially. You got to get out of this. Back the fuck out. Get the fuck away. Hello, Dan. I'm a bisexual male. I was married for 24 years and divorced now for three years. About a year and a half ago, I met my current boyfriend and we moved in together about a year ago. Two months ago, I found out that my boyfriend is HIV positive. Of course, I was concerned in the very beginning, um, and I got tested, and I am not. In our relationship, I am primarily the top. Here's my question. Now that I know that he is HIV positive, and he's seeing a doctor and he's on medication, I know we need to practice safer sex. But occasionally, I don't practice safer sex. And it makes me very nervous because we get caught up in the moment. What would you recommend I do in terms of moving forward with my partner? Because we live together and I love him very much. But clearly, I don't want to become positive. What suggestions would you recommend? I would recommend that you Google uh, Truveda and pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, there is a drug out there now that can uh, – that offers you a tremendous degree of protection. Your boyfriend, uh, if he is – and he's positive. Your boyfriend's positive. 
but he's now in treatment and he's uh, on meds. If his viral load is undetectable, which is something that his doctor would uh, be discussing with him, if his doctor is qualified and decent and competent, they will be throwing that phrase around a lot, viral load. If his viral load is undetectable, he is effectively non-infectious. So you really don't have much to worry about from him if his viral load is undetectable. Viral loads can vacillate. You know, he needs to continue to see his doctor regularly. His viral loads need to be measured and assessed regularly. But if his viral load is consistently undetectable, you are not really at great danger. Also, if you're the top primarily, if not exclusively, you're at uh, even less risk because it's much more difficult for the virus to pass from the bottom to the top than it is from the top to the bottom. Add Truveda to that mix. You're the top his viral load is undetectable and now there is a medication that can offer you a great deal of protection and Truveda is basically a drug cocktail that's used to treat people who are HIV positive to suppress the virus in their bloodstream and you can take that in advance of any potential exposure and it makes you not perfectly bulletproof but 95-ish, 98-ish percent protected from infection. Those three things working together undetectable, you're the top, Truveda, you really don't have much to worry about from those moments where you guys get carried away. There are a lot of serodiscordant. Serodiscordant is a couple where one's pos, one's negative. You know, pos, neg, that's called serostatus. So serodiscordant means that there's a pos and a negative person in a relationship together. So you're a serodiscordant couple. A lot of serodiscordant couples are now the, the negative partner is taking Truveda so that they can stop using condoms, so that they can achieve full intimacy without worry. I have friends who are in serodiscordant relationships where the negative partner is now taking Truveda and they have thrown the condoms away, which, you know, for someone like me who watched a whole bunch of people die in the 80s, that kind of, you know, gives me not the willies, but, you know, kind of gives me pause. But the data and the research bears it out that... It is safe sex. You say you want to have safe sex. You can have safe sex without condoms. If his viral load is undetectable, you're the top and you're on Truveda. That, those three things working together, that is safe sex without condoms. So talk to, he needs to talk to his doctor about his viral loads if he hasn't already. You need to talk to your doctor about getting on Truveda if you haven't already. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a uh, 28-year-old uh, straight male. I've been listening to your podcast for about a year. Um, I was just in need of some advice. Of um, I kind of put myself in a pretty stupid situation. I had moved in with just a girl that I'd met through couch surfing. I just kind of like struck off like a friends with benefits relationship. I was like really in need of a roommate just because of like my housing was in flux and like economic factors. We decided to uh, uh, split a room. Um, it ended up being like the relationship fell apart kind of around Thanksgiving. Um, the situation was kind of like, I was just like sensing that there was like trouble and wanted to know like if she wanted to end it and it ended up being like her sleeping with some other guy, not really telling me kind of just, just, I ended up feeling, feeling pretty used. And I was wondering if it was appropriate for me to like ask her to move out. And just because, like, I had kind of found the place and she, like, just, like, I feel like I was kind of in the right, but I don't know. I know who you are. I've read about people like you, but I've actually never encountered a person like you. You're one of those millennials 
You're one of those people who had helicopter parents who held your hand through every crisis, who did everything for you, who were right there meddling and assisting and cooing and comforting and kissing every boo-boo. And now you you don't want to call mom and dad and tell them about your friends with benefits and how awkward it is after you let this person move in with you because that sucks and who wants to talk to mom and dad about sex. So you're calling me. And you need me to tell you that it's okay, honey. You can ask this crazy bitch to move the fuck out of your apartment. And so there, there you go. Ask her to move out of your apartment. Those, that's your, your option is ask her to move out or make yourself intolerable until she moves out. You can watch uh, all of the first season of Broad City on demand and you will see step by step how to be the intolerable Roommate, Abby's roommate, absolutely intolerable. You can make yourself repulsive and repel her right the fuck out of your apartment. Or you can ask her to move the fuck out. So there you go. You have daddy's permission to ask your awful roommate who's not fucking you anymore and who cheated on you to get the fuck out of your apartment. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something, non-binary, femme-ish Living in uh, New York. So uh, my boyfriend and I, um, he's the perfect guy for me. I love him. Um, We have amazing GGG sex. It's just all around wonderful. He's experiencing what is apparently the family male pattern baldness, uh, despite also being in his 20s. And uh, he's decided to get a buzz cut. Now, I guess this wouldn't be a problem. I'm, you know, he's going to go ahead and get it, except the really, really short hair like that, huge turnoff for me. Does not mesh with my idea of what I want in a guy. Does not mesh with who I think he is. I'm letting him do it out. Like I said, I just, I, I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. Like, it's not a deal breaker. I'm still going to fuck him. I'm still, you know, dating him. I don't know what to do. I want, like, to cover it up or something. <laughs> I don't know if just when we fuck or I, it's a weird question. Like, I really don't have any answers or ideas. Um, he says, no hats, no wigs. And, uh, yeah, I guess it was kind of a rude thing to ask, but it's, I can't stand by such. <laughs> so, Dan, do you or the Tech Save at Risk Youth or any of your listeners have any ideas for what I can do about this? You're just going to have to get fucking used to it. You're going to have to get used to the buzz cut. You're going to have to get used to the physical alteration. And you're going to have to stop making this about you. He's doing the right thing. The wrong thing for someone with male pattern baldness, which comes to a lot of guys and takes their hair away in their mid-late 20s, is to do the Donald Trump comb over, is to take the drugs that in a tiny percentage of users has the side effect of rendering them impotent for the rest of their lives. That's the side effect of those drugs that make hair grow. Please don't take those drugs that make hair grow because they can make your dick not grow ever again. You don't want that. You don't even you don't want to roll those dice. Google it. I'm not making it up. You're just going to have to get used to it. He's doing it right. He's not taking the drugs. He's not doing the comb over. And he's not going to wear the hat. He's just going to get the buzz cut and roll with what he was dealt. He's going to make the most uh, of or the least of his hair. And he's probably going to be more attractive. He's going to be so unattractive to you without hair, hat, or wig that maybe you should end it. But you have to stop. When you got to that point where you asked him to wear a wig – when he fucks you or a hat when he fucks you, oh, that was cold shit, right? That was cut rule. You non-binaries and the way you judge your sex partners based on their physical appearance alone, shouldn't you love him for who he is inside, non-hairinary or whatever we're going to call him? You should. And if you can't, if this is a deal breaker for you, 
If a guy has got to have hair, long, beautiful hair, go get another guy. Don't torture this guy who's probably already tormented. This is very traumatic for a lot of guys when they lose their hair. Don't torture him by fucking him despite his appearance. You're both young enough to find partners whose appearances work for you. And he can go find a girl who likes buzz cuts or likes the self-confidence that he's displaying by being proudly shorn as opposed to Donald Trump in denial. We're going to take a quick break from the sex questions and the sex calls and talk to Neil Steinberg. He's a columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times. He blogs at everygoddamnday.com. He's written numerous books, including You Were Never in Chicago, Drunkard, A Hard-Drinking Life, and Complete and Utter Failure, a celebration of also runs runners-up, never Wurs, and total flops. So, Neil, you usually don't go on sex advice podcasts, and I usually don't have Metro columnists from Big Daily Papers on my show who don't write about sex. But you wrote something in this column about the Pope's comments, the Pope's appalling comments. You can't insult people's faith. Basically, Charlie Hebdo had it coming. If you insult my mother, I'm going to punch you in the nose. The Pope's comments kind of justified the attacks. You wrote this column about what the Pope had to say where you talked about tolerance in the end which and how it's misunderstood. And this comes up a lot in my line of work and, and, and I get this thrown in my face a lot that I am not tolerant. Can you say – and this is so important. It requires so much emphasis. Tolerance doesn't mean everybody coos sympathetically at every conceivable moral system. Can you unpack that? Sure. Tolerance is towards things that are objectionable. Okay, if everyone agrees with you, it's like the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't protect uh, bland, pallid, boring speech. Nobody cares about that. It doesn't protect, co- it doesn't protect compliments. Oh, there's the First Amendment. Right, exactly. We're all free to compliment each other. Right, and, and, and people who are touchy, people who are sensitive, people who are insecure, people who are powerful. Okay, the Pope would just like to go and kill people who oppose him. I mean, I mean not necessarily this Pope, but in general, when you're, when you're a leader of a, of a huge international organization, you don't want people laughing at you. Okay, mm-hmm. they see it as a threat. It's not a threat. Uh, it's a sign of, of strength, frankly, because the, the hurt that comes from insult is self-assigned. Okay, in other words, uh, uh, you decide, it's it's like gay marriage, you decide that those gay marriages undercut your straight marriage. They they really don't, it's just something you decide because you don't like them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this the whole idea of insult. You know, the people insulting you are people you don't like. That's that's why uh, you know black comics can use the N word because they're liked by the group they're supposedly insulting. And if, some, if you like someone, they can insult you. If you hate someone anyway, then you're gonna you know the, the people who shot up Charlie Hebdo. It's not as if they didn't do those squiggles that they wouldn't find something to shoot up. The, the kosher market didn't do any squiggles. It's a moot point. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really sad is that people buy their logic. Okay, they go, oh, I'm insulted by this, and then, well, oh, what, you know, so the Pope says, oh, let's not insult anybody anymore, and then everyone will be happy and no one will be hurt. No, they'll, they'll just take a big step back and they'll find it different, you know, you, you'll insult them by being Jewish, which mm-hmm. was sort of my point. In the, in the column, I said, well, you insult me by, in a catechism. You say, I'm going to hell, and my children are going to hell. And the odd thing is, you, you know... We, you, and by, you, you, that's the Catholic catechism. The Catholic Church believes that Jews and their children are all going to hell. Everybody's going to hell. It's not Catholic Lutherans, too. Goodbye, going to hell. And that's, that is an insult. I, I bring this up a lot. People, you know, I don't think very highly of evangelical Christians. I'm, I'm a non-believer. And, I, and people will say, that's insulting and that's intolerant. And I'm like, you tell me that your imaginary, all-powerful friend is going to torture me for all eternity. How is that not insulting? Mm. 
Right, people, and they don't get tolerance too much. And they see tolerance as sort of, you know, they don't understand the, the essential point of it is that you respect that the other person has an attitude. I mean, you don't have to be insulted. The example I always give is if you've seen the Book of Mormon, it's this intensely profane, intensely scatological, very funny take on the Mormon church. And sure, they could have tumbled to the ground and objected and protested and picketed, uh, but instead they bought ads in the playbill for the Book of Mormon because they said, hey, you enjoy the play, read the book. Now, that, that <laughs> struck me as genius. That, that's not weakness, that's strength. Yeah, but, the, okay? but, but it's important to remember with religious faith that, you know, the Mormon church, if it was within their power to murder everyone involved, to burn them at the stake, if it was 300 years ago, like the Catholic church 300 years ago, they would have. Like, religious faith tacks toward that kind of murderous intolerance. All, all power does, I mean, which is why it's so important to draw the line. There's what I call terror envy. You saw this very strong after the Charlie Hebdo attack, is that people go, oh, I, you know, Bill Donahue, oh, I don't want you to kill anybody, but couldn't we use this terrible act to shut up all the people I don't like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wrote about that too. I wrote about Bill Donahue and the whole because what I what I perceive is a lot of people who are you know, what you hear is you would never say that about Islam. You would never insult Islam the way you insult Christianity, and they want the same deference that people pay people they're afraid of, but they also want credit for not being violent. That we you know we would never engage in those sorts of acts of violence for which we deserve credit. But why aren't you afraid of us in the same way that you're afraid of the people who are violent? That's Bill Donahue's take. That's not to Islam's credit. I mean, it does work. Terror works. You know, I wrote a piece, a column eight years ago after the filmmaker was killed in the Netherlands, and, and uh, where I just read the Koran and talked about what was in it. And my editor wouldn't print it. He just didn't want to go there. Didn't want to cause trouble. And, and so it does work, but that, that doesn't make them a stronger religion. I mean, you know, they're going to be steamrolled by all this stuff. That's why they hate it so much. I love the column. Uh, I love the columns that you wrote uh, about Charlie Hebdo, about the Pope. And I just want to circle back to this idea that how everyone misunderstands what tolerance means. It doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean I like you. It means I'm willing to put up with your shit. I may not agree with it. I may not like it. I can argue against it. I can have my own opinion. I can have a low opinion. And I get in trouble sometimes with gay people when I say this. Like religious conservatives are entitled to their low opinions of us. That if, if you want to fight with them about their theology, if you want to talk them into liking you, that's a fool's errand. You have to talk them into putting up with you in the same civic space. And our being entitled to the same civil rights does not mean you have to approve or change your theology. Tolerance means put up with, not love. Put up with is, is the wrong word. There are other people who are not, and I'm in the Chicago Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame. Okay, I'm not gay. Wait, what? I'm not in the Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame. I don't want to rub your face. You, you, you should look. look it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's coming. Dan. I was That's sucking hey, I was sucking cocks in Chicago before you got a newspaper column, and you made it into the Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame before I did? Life is not fair. I hate to be the person to tell you. <laughs> I, can't to- I, 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 can't, a, I can't tolerate that. I simply can't tolerate that. Well, it's, again, I, you know, be careful what you wish for. It's a very long ceremony, and they, they let in like dozens of people, and you're sitting there in the audience going, I thought I was special, and they're running in this bartender with a weird hairdo, you know. Uh, so it's, what I'm trying to say is, it, it's, it's not that I'm enamored with gay sex acts, okay? I try not to think about it, okay? But I do believe that people find themselves this way and they have as much right to do what they enjoy as I do what I enjoy, to do what I enjoy. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, it doesn't mean I'm sitting there clapping. It means that I understand that it's not all about me. You know, these people are emotionally five years old. 
Okay, and they just, it, I used to work in Wheaton. My first column was the Wheaton Daily Journal, if you could imagine that, 30 years ago. And I came up with a phrase I called wallpapering the world to describe their attitude. They're trying to run ahead and they, 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 they use their children as an excuse. And they're trying to cover up stuff that they don't want to see. It's actually the, a sign of, of, of squeamishness, a sign of lack of faith in themselves. You know, it's like it, the, the veils, okay? It's when the Islamic men can't trust themselves to see a woman's face so they're going to go rape her. That's kind of a horrible thing, but that seems to be the logic they're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, if they're going to come and kill me for saying that, you know, I, I'm not going to not point that out because of Charlie Hebdo. Does that make me a hater? You know, that, that's my assessment of the situation. Okay, and that's, you know, as adults, as a man, I mean, that's what our, our freedoms are all about. I mean, and, and legally, they're required to tolerate your opinion and your right to share that opinion, even if it makes them and their faith look bad. And that applies to Islam, to Catholicism, to Judaism. Right. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't people respect you because they like what you're doing? This, this, I, I, you know, I, I think I, I feel more highly about the Catholic Church than a lot of Catholics because I don't the dogma. Of course, I can dismiss. I can go look at Dante and look at their work in South America and look at these things with the poor and look at these, you know, Petrarch and different thoughtful things they do. In other words, I, you should be respected because you do respectable things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and to say that I want you to respect me because everybody gets respect, you know, it's like everyone but, gets but, pride. But you have to be held, and there's nothing intolerant or anti-First Amendment about holding people accountable, holding institutions accountable when they do disrespectful things, such as uh, interfering with access to birth control for desperately poor people, as the Catholic Church does in South America, trying to slap the dick out of my mouth, as the Catholic Church has done here in the United States. When, a, when, right, a, when a faith, an institution does something shitty, people have a right to jump in and talk about it and hold them accountable and scream and yell. And that's not intolerance. That's accountability. Right. If I say don't, go, don't eat a Chick-fil-A because it's a bunch of homophobes, people say, oh, look at you. Now you're being intolerant. I say, no, no, no. I'm not saying Chick-fil-A should, should, should be banned from business. I'm saying if they're going to make part of their corporate strategy – uh, 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 attacking my fellow American citizens for no because of their religious scruple, I'm not going to eat the shit they serve, you know. And that's that's freedom at its best. Okay, I I think rather than being silenced, I think bigots should be forced to say their opinions. <laughs> I, I, seriously, when the I Nazis marched marched here, um, uh, you know, I think they should bring school groups. I, I I went to the opening of the Illinois Holocaust Museum. And uh, Clinton spoke, and I remember sitting there thinking, boy, there's already a big one in Washington. What do we need another one for? This is gilding the lily, isn't it? And I walked out, and there were a bunch of Nazis uh, protesting. And I thought, oh, thanks, guys. This is why it's here, because you're here. And you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's, you know, that's America. All the, I would never, and people are like, what about the Nazis? I would never try to silence those people. If you're so screwed up that you believe this cycle, fucking bullshit, then, then you should express it so that people can treat you accordingly. And tiptoe around you. Neil Steinberg, he's a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he blogs at everygoddamnday.com. Go there and read the stuff he's been writing about Charlie Hebdo, the Pope, Tolerance, intolerance, Catholicism, and Jews, and where they go after they die. It's great stuff. Thanks for jumping on the phone today, Neil. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old female here living on the West Coast. I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, I had a question concerning uh, my boyfriend. So we've been together over a year and a half. We're pretty serious. You know, I've talked about marriage. He often has babies, blah, blah, blah. And actually, his buddies invited him on a trip to Vegas in the next couple months. To be honest, I really wasn't fond of the idea of him going to Vegas with a bunch of his single guy friends. And 
you know, I let him know that I wasn't very comfortable with it. He told me that he said he wouldn't go if I didn't want him to, but I really don't want to be that girlfriend saying, you can't go to Vegas. So I, you know, I set my feelings aside and, you know, especially since maybe in the future, I'll want to go on a trip with my girlfriends and I don't want him to be a dick about it. So, um, you know, I said, you know, that's totally cool if you go. Um, I guess the deal is he wants me to drive him to the airport, which is three hours away. I offered to drive him to another airport an hour and a half away, um, even though the ticket would be $100 more. Um, you know, I work full time. Um, I told him I'm just not down with driving, you know, a six hour trip one day, you know, on a Friday and then five days later having to drive another six hours. That means taking a day off work. And I just feel like I'd be exhausted. And uh, I just wanted, you know, your opinion on whether I'm being irrational about this. Um, and also any advice on how to kind of act and handle myself during the days when he's gone uh, would be greatly appreciated. So it's January 22nd. 20 years ago today, I met this really cute, long-haired, puka shell necklace-wearing, hoop-earring-wearing boy, dude, in a, in a bar in Seattle. Uh, I was drunk. He was high. Uh, I saw him across a crowded room. I thought he was really cute. I told my drag queen friend, oh my God, look at that boy. He's so hot. Uh, such a pretty mouth. I kept talking about his mouth. And then he finally came up. He came up to where I was standing by the drag queen at the coat check to get something out of his coat. And the drag queen, Ginger Vitus, said, tell him. Stop telling me he's hot. Tell him he's hot. And so I looked at this guy and said, you have a pretty mouth, which is just not something you lead with because you sound like a serial killer. And the boy with the pretty mouth looked at me and said, the better to eat you with. And we knew we were a match. Uh, that was 20 years ago. That was Terry, my husband. And we've been together a long time. We totally love each other. You know, we've had our ups and downs like any couple, but way more ups than downs. There's nothing he wouldn't do for me except drive me to the fucking airport, which is a 30-minute drive from our house, 30, 40 minutes, sometimes 45 in bad traffic. He will not drive me to the fucking airport. And you know what? I, I don't expect him to drive me to the airport. I don't want him to drive me to the airport because I don't want to blow a 90-minute hole in the middle of his day. It seems rude and selfish, particularly when there's a train that goes to the fucking airport in Seattle now. So I sometimes will drive me to the train. Sometimes I jump on the bus if I don't have a big bag and I go to the goddamn train and I get my own fucking ass to the airport because I'm an adult. Setting Vegas aside and you're – unarticulated fears about what might happen in Vegas when your boyfriend is in Vegas with his single male friends. And here's what's going to happen. He's going to probably go to a strip club and get a goddamn lap dance. That's probably going to happen. And that should be okay. Who gives a shit if some lady puts her butt on his lap for a moment that he thinks is hot. Don't worry about it. Let it be this black hole of shit happens. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and don't Police him about it. Be clear that, you know, there can be no penetrative sex. There can be no tongues in mouths. There can be nothing that places me at any risk. And there can be no evidence online. Thank you very much. Otherwise, go have fun with your straight guy friends. But driving you, spending in five days, blowing two of those days, hauling your fucking lazy ass to the airport? No. No. Your time... And and that you offered to drive him to an airport that's 90 minutes away, so just a three-hour hole in your day back and forth to that goddamn airport, but he doesn't want to do that because the airline ticket is too expensive, $100 more expensive. What is six hours of your time – what is 12 hours of your time worth? 
at least a hundred bucks. And then there's gas and aggravation and asking somebody who's not so hot on you going on this trip anyway, but is willing to, uh, you know, allow it without giving you too much grief about it. But then expecting that person to drive you back and forth to the airport. That's just an asshole move. So you tell him, I will drive you to the airport that's closer and you will pay the extra hundred bucks or you will get on a bus and go to the airport or one of your goddamn friends that you're going to Vegas with can drive you to the airport. It is rude of, uh, of him to ask. Tell him no. It is a bad sign that he would even ask. I would never ask Terry to blow a 90-minute hole in his day taking my ass to the airport and back when there's a different way to get there. There has to be a different way for him to get to this goddamn airport, including renting a goddamn car and driving his own goddamn self to the airport. And not to pour poison in your ear, but it's a bad sign. This selfishness on his part that he's trying to leverage this limo service out of you. If I were you, I would wonder about how that selfishness and inconsideration would play out while he was in Vegas. Somebody who's that selfish and inconsiderate about something like this may be likewise selfish and inconsiderate, not taking your feelings into account when he's running around Vegas with his single male friends. And finally, the end of your call, you ask how you should comport yourself in his absence. I don't understand the question. You should do what you would normally do. You should do what you would do when you're alone. Don't do retaliatory bullshit. Don't do, oh, he's in Vegas. He's probably doing something dirty. I'm going to run out and do something that I don't want to do that's dirty just so we're even. Have some fun. See some friends you don't normally get to see because you're in a couple. Pay attention to people you've been ignoring or neglecting uh, over the last year as you dated and fell in love with this selfish and considerate guy who can't get his own ass to a fucking airport and have some fun. He's in Vegas having some fun in your absence. You have some fun in his absence. He comes home. You guys tell each other what you did, the fun that you had, hopefully all within the parameters of permissible fun having in each other's absence. It's good to get away from each other when you're in a relationship. It's good to be apart. It's good to have adventures on your own. Comport yourself by having an adventure on your own, not a retaliatory. He's probably getting a lap dance adventure. So I'm going to go out and get, go to some horrible strip club where guys take off their clothes and women pretend they're men and scream and hoop and holler and perform male bullshit energy for each other, not for the strippers that you don't have to do that. Go have what you think is fun while he's having what he thinks is fun and stay within both of you permissible levels of fun in each other's absence. But if he can't get his own fucking ass to the airport, he doesn't get to go. Hey, Dan, I'm a 27-year-old straight male living in Canada, and um, I'm calling regarding my girlfriend. We've been together about two years, and she's going to be getting a job in California. She's right now finishing her final year of university, and I'm terrified that it's just not going to work out. I'm 27, and she is 21, going on 22, and there's a big age gap, and I feel like she doesn't know what she wants and I don't know what I can do to hold on to her I don't know what I can say if there's like some magic solution because right now I'm freaking out and I feel like she's the one and I don't want to lose someone that's special so I don't know what I can do to hold on to her maybe that's just me being neurotic and silly and it's just not going to work out and I can't really control that but I I was wondering if you had some advice for me because I feel like 
if I lose this girl, um, I don't know what I'm going to do to myself because I, I feel like I struggle with depression and it'll be a pretty catastrophic thing losing this person. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I mean this in the nicest possible way. You've got to get your shit together. And that has to be independent of whether or not you are with this woman uh, in three weeks, three months, or six months, or six years. Uh, whether you go with her to California or not, whether or not you guys are together for the rest of your lives, you have to be able to stand on your own two feet. And she has to know that you are capable of standing on your own two feet. Because if the way you've rolled this out to her is, I struggle with depression and it'll be catastrophic for me if I lose you, you're in a sense taking yourself hostage. She is now not free to take you or leave you to be in this relationship of her own free will. She is trapped in this relationship potentially because she fears what you might do to yourself or what might happen to you. If she leaves, she may feel, you know, I can't leave because I would then be doing X, Y, and Z to him. And that's not a relationship. You have to be in good working order to date, to be in relationships that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. That doesn't mean you can't struggle with depression. That doesn't mean you can't have a feeling. It doesn't mean you can't be super tremendously sad at the prospect of losing someone. But you can't turn to that someone and say, if I were to lose you, I don't know what would happen. If I were to lose you, I would be destroyed. Because, you again, you are taking yourself hostage. That is no longer a relationship. That is a hostage situation where you have taken yourself and your partner hostage. It can't be like that. So here's what I think you should do. You should get into therapy. You should get treatment for your depression. You should tell her that you will be fine whether or not this relationship continues. You should tell her that you are excited for what's about to come for her in California for this new job, this new gig, and that you would like to stay together. But you will not be destroyed if you don't stay together. She needs to feel free to go to California. She needs to feel free. She needs to know that being with you means that she is free, not trapped. If she feels trapped in this relationship, she will end it or sabotage it. To get away from you, to get away from that hostage feeling. You say that you feel like she's the one. If you're a listener, you've heard me go off on that, right? There is no one. There's a world full of ones. There's 3.5 billion women on the planet. There are lots of potential ones for you out there. There is no one singular. And no one is the one. There's no one who is perfect. There is a 0.64 and you round that motherfucker up to one. You make somebody one. That is an act of will. So a, a loving act when you create the one out of somebody who is not perfect for you. And in turn, they make you the one. And you are not perfect for them. So let go of that feeling that if she walks out of your life or if this relationship ends, that you will never again feel this way about anyone else because she was it. She was the one, the one singular, the only one on earth that you could ever feel this way about. Your perfect girlfriend is not true. Lots of ones out there. You may have to go find another one if this relationship ends. And it very well might. And I'm not trying to salt a wound or be cruel. You know, when someone says she doesn't know what she wants, that often means I, you know, I do know what I want, but I, I'm having a hard time saying it because you're standing there taking yourself hostage and I don't want to be the occasion of making you miserable or setting you off or sending you off into a spiral of depression. 
and I or self harm. Typically, that sort of thing. I don't know what I want is code for I do know what I want, and unfortunately, heartbreakingly, I, and I'm so sorry about this. What I want isn't you, and you need to brace yourself to hear that. All that said, your best bet for keeping this person in your life as your girlfriend is to let her go to California, is to free her. If you are destined to be together, she will circle back to you. If she goes and feels free to go and misses you and wants you there, potentially you could join her in California or wherever she winds up after California. And if she goes feeling like this relationship is a trap that she has to escape from for her sanity, she will escape from it. By clinging to her because you fear losing her, you are risking losing her. You want to be okay about being alone. I wouldn't be happy about being alone if something were to happen to Terry. Wouldn't be happy about it. I would be okay. And he knows it, which frees him to stay. Doesn't just free him to leave. Oh, Dan would be okay so I can go. It frees him to stay because then staying is a choice that he's making. Our relationship, our marriage is not a trap that he's in. And he wants to know that I would be okay even if I wound up alone because he wouldn't want me to be miserable if something were to happen to him. You owe that to yourself to get the help that you need, to read the self-help books that might help, to get on the meds that would help with the depression so that she knows that you would be okay alone and you know that you would be okay alone so that she doesn't look at this relationship as a trap and you don't look at this relationship as something that's crucial to your stability and mental health. Because relationships end. You don't want to be that vulnerable in the face of this relationship. You have to be healthy and sane and able to stand on your own two feet. You got to be good on your own. Get to that place where you're good and solid whether or not you're in a relationship with this woman going forward. And Paradoxically, you're likelier to be in a relationship with this woman going forward if you are good without her. And she feels it. Hello, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old bisexual man living in a large city in the South. My family is from a South American country, and I lived there during my teenage years. While I was living there, I was sexually involved with an older male cousin who is at least 10 years older than me. This all happened when I was 14 or 15, and since I've moved three times, and I've not seen him in over 10 years. However, just recently, my cousin moved to a suburb of my city, and over the holidays, I had to spend Christmas with him and his wife and his three children at my parents' house because my parents seemed to invite him and his family over at every possible chance. I should mention that my parents don't know anything about what happened, and I seriously think my dad would kill him if he found out. And I'm not just saying that as a form of speech. I do actually believe my dad would grab a gun and kill him. So I can't talk to them about this. And then my cousin has invited me over to his house for his birthday, and I've so far managed to avoid ever being left alone in the same room with him. But I am made terribly uncomfortable by the situation. I don't know how much his wife knows. I don't know if he has been sexually involved with other men or with other teens, and I don't really care. Um, And I was perfectly fine putting the past in the past, but now I just become really anxious every time I know he will be around and the situation is likely to continue and to come up as long as he lives near me and my parents. I am married um, to a man now and I'm immensely happy and my husband knows that I was involved with one of my cousins sexually when I was younger 
Um, but he doesn't know that it is this particular cousin. I have many cousins. And, and I'm not really sure what to do. I mean, should I tell my husband that this is him? Should I try to control my anxiety and just minimize how much I'm going to be around him? I don't really know what to do, Dan. This is a difficult question to answer. I really wish uh, I had your phone number because I would love to have spoken to you uh, at a little more length about this. You describe it as a sexual relationship. You describe yourself as being or having been involved with your cousin. You don't describe it as abuse. You don't describe it as rape. You don't describe it as exploitative. But there's something clearly in the tone of your voice, how traumatized you are by this person's reemergence in your life. It doesn't sound like it was a sexual relationship or a purely consensual relationship. It sounds like you were – you look back on this these experiences with regret and trauma. That's clear in your voice and yet you don't use you – know, you know, that's why I wish I could process this with you. Like how do you feel about it? I was sexually active at 15. I know, I, have, I know a lot of people who are sexually active at 14 and 15. I was sexually active at 15 with people in their 20s who were not my cousins. Uh, and I wasn't traumatized by that. Um, so just like drawing that arbitrary line uh, through the age charts and saying anything that happens before the, the legal age of consent is going to be experienced as abuse, that statutory rape will always be experienced as a, a, a abusive or exploitive by the person who – you know, by the younger person, I don't think is wholly accurate. It doesn't jive with my experience and the experience of most adults that I know who all agreed that statutory rape is wrong, 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 and people should not fucking do it. And then you talk to them about what age were you when you lost your virginity and to whom did you lose it? And you very frequently find people who are adamantly opposed, as I am, I am, to statutory rape, carving out this massive exception for their own experiences. So I don't know how you feel about it. I am going to go out on a limb, not very far out on a limb and not a very thin branch here, and guess that you were traumatized by this experience. So now what do you do? I think you tell your husband that this is the cousin because you need your husband's love and support. You also need your husband to run interference for you at these events. You need your husband to protect you. If you never want to be alone in a room together with this person ever again, that'll be easier to pull off if your husband knows who this person is and knows never to leave your side when this person is around. As for your father, as for your family, your parents, I'm going to take your word for it, that if you were to tell your dad about what happened, your dad would literally murder this person. Maybe you can tell your mom and ask your mom not to tell your dad. Maybe there are other family members who can know because you can't keep going to events at your parents' house that this person attends. So your parents, even if they don't know all the details, have to know that inviting this person means you're not coming and they will have to choose between this cousin and their own son. I bet they'll choose their own son and you won't have to spend another Christmas with this person ever again. Finally, I think you should say something to this cousin that you remember that it was bad, that you were traumatized by it, that it was abuse and that you don't want to see him, that you don't want to be in his presence. Write him a long letter. Hold him accountable for what happened. You don't have to threaten him, but implicit is your leverage here. He has a wife. He has kids. He has family. There are your parents, your homicidal dad. You don't have to say, I'm going to keep this secret or I'm not going to tell anybody. You don't have to make him any promises. You just have to make him aware that you remember, you don't like it, and you don't want to be around him, and he needs to stay away from you. 
And you should add that he needs to stay away from other younger male relatives in the family. And I think you should get some counseling from someone who's not just a fag with a sex advice podcast, but some professionals who can also help you through this, perhaps help you talk about this with your husband. If you're afraid of rolling this out with him solo, sit down with a counselor that you've had some sessions with and discuss it with your husband constructively, what you guys can do, what he can do to help you and support you. And a counselor can help you assess how to discuss this with your parents if the need should arise. Sorry you're in this situation. Good luck. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I have a question about some friends of ours. My partner and I have some very good friends who are poly. Um, it's a, I have a husband and a wife and their boyfriend. And they're great, great people. Love them to death. But the relationship is starting to kind of concern me a little bit. The husband and wife have been married for a long time. Uh, the boyfriend came in afterwards. And, and for a while, it really worked. And there, there are kids on both sides of this. And the kids have now bonded in kind of a brothers and sisters sort of way. But the boyfriend is now kind of seeking other things, uh, wants to be involved in basically getting his rocks off wherever he wants to, outside of the bounds, I guess, of their relationship. And the husband and wife have had a lot of issues with this because they're like, okay, well, the that's not what we agreed on. You know, either we play together or we don't play. They bring in other people into the bedroom uh, quite often, but either they're all there or they don't go for it because that's just the scope of the relationship that they've decided on. But he has been getting really demanding and kind of controlling. He wants to be able to do what he wants, but he constantly gets on them, on the husband and the wife, for doing what they want to do. Even if him, uh, the husband and the wife have sex and he's not around and he finds out about it later, he gets really upset with them and, and really makes them feel bad about having sex with each other, even though he wants to be able to go and have sex with not only them anytime he wants to, but also by himself with other partners um, anytime he wants to. And, and I'm starting to see a little bit of, of an abusive relationship maybe forming. Um, he's just really manipulative with them about it, really kind of shitty to them about it. And it's kind of affecting the kids because they live together and then he kicks them out when they didn't give him what he wanted. And now they live apart, but they're spending a lot of time at each other's houses and all the kids are there. And I'm just concerned for their well-being, the well-being of my friends. Um, I met the married couple first, so I'm primarily friends with them, but I, I am friends with their boyfriend, and I think that they're all wonderful people. I'm just not really sure if it's my place or how to talk to them about it, because it's starting to really concern me the way that this dynamic is kind of shaping out. Uh, I don't like seeing my friends consistently upset because their partner is wanting to so far push the bounds of their relationship into him being able to fuck whatever moves and them not being able to even have sex with each other unless he's involved. This one could be filed either in mind your own business, not your relationship, but also the requirements of friendship, which include speaking up every once in a while, speaking your piece. If you are observing what you consider to be abusive uh, patterns. If you think your friends are being badly used by this guy, badly treated by this guy, I think friendship obligates you to say something, to say that. You can't fix it. You can't tell your friends what to do. You don't want to be their abusive friend who's bursting in and ordering them around and angry with them because they're not following your advice. 
and ending the relationship. But you do, I think, have to speak up and say, this is what I've seen and I'm concerned for you guys. This seems abusive to me. Are you guys being well treated by your other partner? Because from the, the looks of it, what I'm observing from outside, it doesn't seem that way and I'm worried for you. That's it. That's all you have to say. And then you listen to them. They may react defensively. They may be so invested in this relationship for the time being that they can't not leap to this guy's defense. You may pay a price in the short run as a friend when you speak up in that way and the friendship may be strained. You may be exiled until this issue is resolved. Often what happens is you know, the courageous friend does the right thing, speaks up, and the person is not yet ready to end the relationship and then they toss the friend out because they don't want the friend looking at them because they know the friend is right. And it's hard to be, you know, looked at by somebody who has the number on your relationship, who knows it's abusive and has discussed that with you because it's kind of humiliating in a way. And some people can't deal. And so they exile the friend and then the relationship ends and they reach out to the friend. They finally have to admit that the friend is right. They finally get around to doing what the friend was implicitly advising them to do. Don't order them to break up with him, but implicitly you're – suggesting that it may be time to end this. They get around to doing that and then they reconnect with the friend and there's a scene where they say, you were right and I am sorry. Should have listened to you. Should have ended it sooner. Hopefully it won't come to that. You say they've already moved out. They're already living in separate houses. It was unclear whose kids are whose, but they've already moved out. They're already living in separate houses. It sounds like it's on its way to ending. Maybe your nudge, maybe your observation, maybe your expression of concern will convince them to finally pull the plug. And there will be no period of estrangement. They'll be like, yep, you're right. We're winding this down. Hopefully that'll be the case. So my advice, speak up. Nothing prescriptive. Don't tell them what to do, but speak up. Friendship obligates you. I'm calling about the uh, man who was really frustrated that his wife never instigated any relationship or any sexual relationship. Maybe she's really, really nervous about it. Something that has worked for me, find a piece of jewelry or a shirt or socks or something that she can wear as a uh, possibility of this, I'm open tonight, and that would be her thing. So if she wears a necklace and he notices, that means that is her way of starting it. So maybe that will work. Hi, this is a suggestion for the husband in episode 430 who would like his wife to initiate sex. Sounds like she might just be having all the sex she wants. Why would she need to initiate it? You're having sex three or four times a week kind of a lot for a 20-year-old marriage. Kudos to you. Sounds like maybe you need to withhold your constantly initiating the sex to leave room for her to do it at all. So maybe do all those lovely things you know that turn her on but don't actually initiate the sex. Withhold it. You know, be super romantic, set the scene, whatever kind of stuff she might like, but don't initiate. You need to Keep it in your pants long enough for her to have the chance to initiate it. And as soon as she does any little kind of step forward towards initiating it, reinforce that. That's fabulous. And that's how you're going to increase that great initiating behavior. That's my suggestion. Good luck. 
again, um, I am calling in response to the caller who is curious about that smoking vagina of hers. Yeah, it's totally steam. So in the same way that when we go outside, we open our mouths, which are like a warm and wet orifice. Yeah, you're told they're going to see steam pouring out of there. The same thing happens to our vaginas. We are mammals um, and the toilet bowl and the toilet water is cold. So it's just, it's science. And we're going to leave it there. And thank you, as always, to all you Magnum subscribers to the podcast. We love you. Thank you for your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. We're taking Hump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival, back on tour for the second year in a row. We have dates coming up in Philadelphia and San Francisco at the end of February. More cities, more dates to be announced soon. Go to humptour.com for information about those specific dates and to buy tickets to Hump. It's a great year for Hump. Please come to the show. Check it out. See you in Philly. I'll be there for the show. And in San Francisco, I will be there for the shows too. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Neil Steinberg on Twitter at Neil Steinberg. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.